0: The sort of dirty truth is my colleagues, my composer colleagues, much prefer working with performance work in a historically informed environment because they're more open to the idea that the score is not the absolute be all and end all, that it's a living document.
1: That's the composer Tarika Regan, who was just appointed composer and residence of the San Francisco-based Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra, explaining why it makes sense for a period instrument ensemble to work with a composer. Welcome to Parlando Musical Matters, a podcast for classical voice North America. I'm Vivian Schweitzer, and for this episode, I spoke with the prolific British-American composer Tarek O'Regan, along with Courtney Beck, the executive director of the Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra. Tarek and Courtney discussed the mission of keeping a Baroque orchestra relevant in the 21st century, Tarek's eclectic musical influences, and why he thinks new music should be allowed to fail sometimes. We started off the conversation talking about what's in store for the upcoming season, which will be the first under the baton of Richard Eager and featuring bass baritone Devon Tynes as creative partner. The season includes Schumann's Requiem, a new production of Handel's Radimisto, and of course, lots and lots of new music. And you'll hear some of Tarek's music during this episode.
2: It is a season where we we have pulled out all the stops. So I think for a lot of organizations, they're they're being careful. and we decided that being the opposite of careful, was the way to go. And it's sort of how we feel about our relationship with Tarek O'Regan. That's a perfect segue. Mm -hmm. He's about as uncareful as they (laughs) come.
1: I love the idea of a Baroque orchestra with period instruments having a composer in residence, because I think it's not what we expect these days. How are you going to approach composing for this ensemble?
0: The sort of dirty truth is my colleagues, my composer colleagues, much prefer working with Performance who work in a historically informed environment because they're more open to the idea that the score is not the absolute be all and end all, that it's a living document. So, on the one hand, there's the very practical thing, which is that I think a lot of contemporary composers actually just find both the instruments themselves and the way that these uh, players and musicians and singers have created through their expertise and through their skill and through their research a wonderful way of playing these instruments. I think contemporary composers just find that a wonderful Pandora's box to open of just, of frankly, new sounds. But I think the, the really crucial part of it, honestly, is, and this speaks specifically to PBO and Courtney and Richard and the team there, is what I would call the alignment between a sort of historically informed attitude Uh, being very much in line with a forward-thinking contemporary attitude to Mm -hmm. to music, which is that if you want the most historically accurate version of a concert a few hundred years ago, there would have been a significantly greater amount of new music Mm. in, in those concerts of that time. And what's happened is over the years and over the years, as more and more works have become part of the repertoire, the proportion of, of contemporary music in the average concert has sort of shrunk and shrunk to the point that there's vast amounts of concerts taking place today. I don't
1: have any contemporary music. Every single premiere, it's built up to be this monumental occasion because it's so rare, and I think there's a ton of pressure on the composer, and I think sometimes the ensembles only have about you know 24 hours to put it together, so they're not even necessarily giving it the best performance that it deserves. And then sometimes these pieces just disappear. And I
0: think that's a result of what I would call a sort of fetishistic attitude to new mm-hmm. music, that it's become this rather sort of peculiar thing. It's entirely focused around the premiere. Curiously, by adding contemporary music, you're getting much more close closer to uh, a historically informed sense of what concert going meant when the instruments and the, the bulk of the repertoire was made and written. And part of that is just... Music being music, we keep prefixing things, contemporary music or or female composers and things like mm. that. Fundamentally, it would be nice to arrive at a time where we can get rid of all the, all the prefixes and the suffixes. And I think what, what attracts me both as a composer writing for PBO, and writing for the wonderful players there, is, is, you know, being a composer is 50% of the job, I suppose, and the other half is working with Courtney and Richard on almost sort of uh, and the team there sort of almost as a producer and one of the one of the earliest things that I said was you know if you're going to commission music commission lots of it lots and you know as much as you can and it doesn't need to be epic evening length works that as you say never see the light of day again I'm talking about short pieces that just become part of the fabric of the concert going experience.
2: And I think the reason that, that we decided together to have a three-and-a-half-year-plus relationship is to make sure that these, these pieces of new music aren't one-offs, right? Mm-hmm. That it's built seamlessly into the programming because there is space for it. I think it's when we make such a big deal about it that it fails, as opposed to building into the fabric of who we are and what we do. And that all music at one time, of course, was new. And I know that's how Richard sees it. And I know that's how Tarek sees it and talks about it. And I know, Tarek, you you often talk about um, music being bad, too. You know, not, (laughs) not, 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 no. And I, I love that. Not worrying about bad music putting stuff out there and making room for lots of composers to come forward, which I know is also, you know, a, a really big part of the residency.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it it speaks to sort of building up the institution of PBO and what we're doing as, you know, in some ways, the more important aspect of this than each individual composer. And I think I've learned a lot by going to, for example, museums, contemporary art museums, whereby you can have a wonderful experience at the Museum of Modern Art and not like a piece in it at the exhibition, and nothing will stop you coming back again. And and there's absolutely no nervousness, at least in the way that the institution of the museum deals with this artist. There's absolutely no nervousness around this idea of the people coming in, quote unquote, not liking it that's a perfectly valid response. It's an important response. And it's one that is as equal as liking it, but it's an addictive response and that should get you back. And I think with this fetishization of new music, we've got into this rather needy thing. When you look at a lot of marketing around contemporary music, a lot of it is based around how much you're going to like it. And I I think that's a very dangerous way to go because inevitably some people don't. And then... The problem is if you've told people that they're going to like it and they don't, well, they don't, you know, the entire institution has failed at that
1: point. Yeah, That's a great point about the museums or literature. Every time you buy a book, you don't assume you're going to love it or swear off contemporary literature forever just because you haven't liked XYZ book. But it's true, as you say, with contemporary music, it's built up to this sense that if you don't like it, you know you're going to be turned off contemporary music forever. And it's a lot of pressure on everyone, the organizations and the composers and the listeners.
2: that's right. Well if you're
0: and if you're only commissioning one big piece a year let's say then I understand it. It's a, it's mm-hmm. a huge amount of pressure on everyone. Or you get you know you get the worst thing of all where pe- people say they like it and then the conversations going on behind the scenes they didn't like <laughs> it. <laughs> sort of, why, why can't we just be honest and just feel that the duty is to bring to bring work into the world. I think we can we can possibly achieve what I would what I would call a best practice for commissioning new music hopefully. Whereby there's greater transparency in the system. I think there's there's lots of discussions to have ahead. But one thing that, you know, one thing that I've always been curious about is publishers and organisations share commissioning templates and commissioning language amongst themselves, but it's not publicly available. And I always think, why? If you if you've developed a really good, for example, you've developed a really good commissioning template and you're commissioning lots and lots of people, is that not something we can think about? making standing by it publicly this is how we commission work this is the type of contract we provide this is you know this is what we stand by as an organisation you know if you've got if you've got a great template of how a commissioning agreement could work that's very that's very useful to other commissioners
1: and is that template something you you would want to be public in terms of the the fee, the structure, the type of music they're looking for, the length, of everything? We've had
2: a, a year of just incredible transparency with everything. So, you know, my, my immediate reaction to that is, yes, why wouldn't we? When we're looking at the, you know, democratization of, of you know, of music and the making of, of music. But maybe I spoke too soon, Tarek. <laughs> I, I, I think that if we are able to actually put that template together here and create something for the sector that will help to guide discussion and to integrate new music, and if we can do something groundbreaking in this particular area, I think composers only stand to benefit, organisations stand to benefit.
0: There's a lot of discussions ar- ar- around right now, for example, around the work that composers do in around a commission that has nothing to do with composing. So, a composer might be paid some something some money to write a piece, and then, depending on the organization, they may end up doing hours and hours of work that is talking to donors, doing promotion and um, doing things like that. there's a lot of discussion about how do you account for that financially you know and it's not about huge amounts of money it's just about accounting for time. It really is not using just um, using the, PBO as a springboard to also rethink what a modern commissioning program can be.
2: There's the, there's the practice of making music. Then what you're talking about, though was also the business of making music and codifying things in a way that I think will help to inform how composers work with all kinds of ensembles. I mean, everything that you talk about, you know, the meetings that we have, the, the R&D work, right? Some Something that we feel very strongly about too at PBO is we, we like to compensate the people that we work with. We value their time. And no, it's not... The, the work that you put into showing up for a what's new, the work that you put into, you know, putting together a commission, I mean, all, all of these things have a real value. This is, this is your livelihood and together as we also really strive to become a much more sort of artist-centric organization, we have an opportunity to contribute both to the music dialogue as well as the business dialogue, I think, to make things a whole lot better for everyone, in the sector Our audiences are they're incredibly supportive even those who are you know the diehards. I've come here to hear baroque music I'm not interested in hearing anything else you know I, I would say more often than not even when you hear that when you hear Tarek talk about new music and its place in, in history, its place in contemporary times, more often than not we are able to bring the audience along.
0: I'm not the only one that thinks this. But a composer in residence is no longer or should not be long any longer just about writing a piece and flying in for the rehearsals and then leaving. You know, it's about what you, what you can do with that role. I'm a big believer in the ability to, to do proper workshopping because I think, again, it's about taking the pressure off. We've all been to composition workshops that are not workshops, they're readings. And again, you speak to composers, but readings serve a very different purpose. Reading is very useful to get a recording of a piece. It doesn't. You're not. If you've written a 20 minute piece for orchestra, you're not going to be doing much work on the piece in a in a two hour reading. There's not a lot you can do on it. You can make it go faster or smaller or shorter. You can cut things out, but you're not really going to be reorchestrating things with sort of 50 players looking at you, wondering (laughs) where where their music is.
1: a guitar interlude that reflects Tarek's Irish heritage. Earlier in the show, you heard a piece called Rye, which reflects his Algerian heritage, and you also heard an orchestral work called Latent Manifest and one called Scattered Rhymes, a piece that reflects his interest in Renaissance choral music. Tarek grew up in South London and listened to many genres, including British rock bands and jazz, and he studied composition at Oxford and Cambridge. While in residency with the PBO, he will compose a concerto for Oud, a short neck lute that is an important element of traditional Arab and Middle Eastern music.
0: The Oud is as contemporary as it is ancient. We don't view it so much as a contemporary instrument. We do when, you know, certain people choose to engage with it, but it's almost in a sort of retro vibe. So, writing for the Oud is, to my, in my mind, just a very direct, example an instance of what we've been talking about, which is something that can be both historical and contemporary in one gesture.
1: Tarek, I imagine that you'll probably be the only composer out there who's working simultaneously on a concerto for Oud and an opera. Tell me a little bit more about the opera that you're planning to write for the Philharmonia Baroque.
0: It's an adaptation of a well-known novel by a very well-known author. It's a very contemporary subject is especially interesting exploring dramatically subjects that are in the period in which we live using the sound world of a historically informed group that inevitably draws us intrinsically just through that sound from from an earlier period. So there's there's, there's an immediately unsettling nature to that relationship. And to my mind, the subject and the uh, forces are hand in glove, actually, even though at at first glance they might seem extremely at odds but but it, 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 it was a real light bulb moment going off. but fundamentally it it, it it is a love story at its heart, and depending on your views of humanity. And indeed love. It is poignant. And I think for me, there is a certain humanity in there that is that is uplifting. But on the outside, yes, one, you know, it could be viewed as quite a sort of dark, dark story, but mm-hmm. not helping you out here.
1: much, <laughs> I'm, I'm intrigued. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. be excited to hear what it is. I mean, I think a lot of contemporary operas, you know, are, are fairly uh, dark themed. I don't think there have been many, many comedies recently. We just tried
0: it for Houston Grand Opera and it's really hard writing comedy. We did a new opera based on the life of Lorenzo da Ponte, who's a very comedic character.
1: Colourful man, yeah.
0: (laughs) But it's very hard. Comedy is very hard, because Mm. partly because we don't expect it anymore from the operatic experience contemporary. It's it's another example of fetishism around contemporary works. We've somehow managed to strip out one entire form of expression from the art Mm. form in, in the last, what, 50 60 years it's yeah. pretty strange when I mean, imagine if all book all novels came out there were no comedies
1: yeah
0: <laughs> or films
2: right you know, there, were,
0: there were no there were no comedic films because it didn't fit the art form
2: there's so many more books and so many more movies that i think we're desperate to tell those dark stories and mm. te- you know, teach those lessons yeah we're, we're, we're desperate to tell the timely stories
0: It finally feels slightly rid of of the sort of shackles of stylistic groups, and that you had to be in this group or another group, or if you there was a certain way that new music needed to sound. I think people are a little calmer, you know. And when you've got when you've got composers that that the world feels a bit more open, you're just going to get more repertoire that's you know that's worthwhile and and, and exciting. And I, and and again, just. The the more repertoire you have, they're not not everything's going to be great, but the the, right. the the game of statistics that is, you know, premieres is it, the more stuff that's being premiered, the 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 more actual numbers of mu- pieces of music that will stick.
1: And cheers to that! The Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra will be performing in New York at the Caramore Summer Music Festival on Sunday, July eighteenth, and on the Naumburg Orchestral Concert Series in Central Park on Tuesday, July twentieth. And in late August, just before the official start to their season, the PBO will present the premiere of The No One's Rose, a music, dance, and theater work inspired by the poetry of Holocaust survivor Paul Salam and featuring a score by Matthew O'Coin. Thanks for listening. I'm Vivian Schweitzer.